So I was recently teaching a loving-kindness retreat on the East Coast, IMS with Sharon, I think I might have mentioned it, Sharon Salzburg, which I do every year. And um, I was um, wanting to talk about the relationship on that retreat, uh, relationship between nature and love since it was a loving-kindness retreat, and since so much of my life and practice and experiences outside, I wanted to explore um, that inter- the interrelationship in that context. And it came up because I was in the stage where we're teaching, wishing love for all beings, as the Buddha advocates in the the Metta Sutta, the, the teaching on loving-kindness. And I began to reflect, well, what is all beings? <laughs> Who are all beings? Which is an interesting question. Right? We say that a lot, I mean, all beings be happy. It's very glib. And we can often say it without really meaning, well, what does that mean, all beings? You know, so this retreat center is in, you know, deep in the woods in Massachusetts which means it's deep in Tickville. And so wishing loving-kindness for all beings means wishing matter for the ticks. And of course, it's not just the ticks. You've got the black flies and the noceums and the mosquitoes and the horse flies and the deer flies, the joys of New England woods. And... Do we really mean that when we say it? <laughs> May all beings be happy, <laughs> including the ones that are thinking I'm dinner. You know. So in, in, in the Metta Sutta, the Buddha says, In gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or tall, seen and unseen, including noceums, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. So with a boundless heart, should one cherish all living beings, radiating, radiating upwards over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded. Thus shall we radiate this quality of loving-kindness, which sounds really nice <laughs> until we're confronted with, you know, maybe somebody at work that we really don't like. Or, you know, there's a bug, you know, one of the red ants is biting us and it's really painful. Or, um, you know, we're afraid in the woods because of, you know, what lies out there. And so it's hard for us to open our heart because of the, the fear, you know, and the, the, the contraction. And so I, I had a lot of fun giving this talk there. I don't usually talk about nature much on that retreat. And, um, and Sharon and I have known each other for a long time, and we have this joke. She's, you know, she lives in New York mostly, and um, she's really not into nature. <laughs> like... <laughs> If I'm like deep woods into nature, she's like, you know, Manhattan and as far from it. And so we, we often joke about that. And, 
anyhow, so it was quite fun for me to, to talk about love and nature on her retreat. Um, so, and, you know, given we're doing this practice outdoors, you know, and, and, and those of us who spend more time outdoors, you know, we have a lot more contact with the non-human world, you know, a range of species that we don't find in Manhattan or in wherever you live in the city. And, and so I think it gives us a little doorway into the profusion of life and how we can f- you know, vis- literally feel into that sense of expanding our hearts in many directions. There was a, it's funny, the day I gave this talk at The Guardian, released uh, an article about uh, some scientists who were doing meta-analyses of trying to quantify the amount of species in the world. Um, And of course that's a a guesstimate because there's millions of species that we don't know about. But at their calculation there was 8.7 million species, which I'm not sure included the 30 million species of insects which is just, you know, it's just mind-blowingly astounding. It's, you know, all beings. That's a lot of beings and a lot of species. Many of whom are on the endangered species list. 16,000 on the endangered species list. And of course there are many others endangered we don't even know that will become extinct before we have any knowledge of their existence. <coughs> and then the res- research that's happening in biology and botany around the incredible sophistication and natural intelligence of life, organic life, plant life, tree life, and um, various studies uh, looking at how plants communicate, how trees communicate, how they warn each other about threats, and, um, you know, the intelligence of mycelium, that's the largest say, on Earth, and so generally when we think about radiating love for all beings, we think of sentient life, and, um, but we need to expand what we mean by sentient life, because you know, when you're hanging out with a 600-year-old ponderosa pine, it's a living being, and we can feel a presence. We might not know what kind of sentience it has, but this, you know, I hang out in the redwoods in Northern California where I live and, you know, this network of root systems that they share in this ancient presence, thousands of years old trees. So, so what I want to explore today is, um, is this theme of, of love and nature and, and how it, how it, um, how nature um, supports and informs the cultivation of the Brahma Viharas, these four divine abodes of the heart, love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. (laughs) 
And since we've been out in the woods these last days, you know, it's, you just reflect on your experience how love and compassion and joy and equanimity may have arisen in this context. Right? And love may be quite obvious. Right? I'm sure all of us are feeling in different ways at different times fondness, affection. You know, you see the the um, you know the the mother goose with her geese with, her, with you know and just and it's sweet I in the house I'm staying in there's three wren nests and I see that this very busy wren preparing the nest and um, you know it's hard not to feel love or you see the deer wandering through we were meditating yesterday and uh, I happened to look up and there was a, you know, a deer just walking behind the, the group you know, very sweet, very silent. Could smell us. Couldn't, couldn't figure out what was going on, but knew we were there. Um, and then our heart gets touched with compassion when we feel the vulnerability and the tenderness of life, right? So walking up today, seeing uh, the duck with only one duckling. And yesterday she had like 10 or 12. And I was like, ooh, where are the little ducklings? I don't know, but, you know, maybe they're just hiding in the grass with, you know, Papa. But, um, you know, just, again, very easy for the heart to be moved by the seeing the tenderness, you know, when you you see the little uh, fledgling birds in their nests shivering and shaking, and you feel that, that wish, the heart's wish, for that, that being to be well, to be safe from harm, to be protected, to be free from pain. And then joy, appreciative joy. You know, the appreciative joy in the Brahma Vihara framework is appreciating the happiness of others, but I also think it's really just the joy of the heart. And if there's you know, one quality that's hopefully accessible, quite a lot here is joy. Joy of beauty, joy of nature, joy of light, and just all the many things that have touched us, the flowers along the way. It feels like the flowers are waking up after the rain. So many different, you know, the the yarrow and the paintbrush and the wild roses and all kinds of other beautiful, you know, they're just, I see them and they're just like these little rays of sunshine, the sunflower, wild sunflowers. And then the the quality of equanimity, right? It's also, you know, we've been looking at this some in our practice. Staying steady and balanced in the midst of the changing conditions, the hot, the cold, the comfortable, the uncomfortable. You know, maybe for you, the equanimity is around how do you, you know, walk around here at night and, and work with the fear that comes up about you know being in the dark or sleeping in your tent and hearing the, the rustling outside you know hear something scratching your tent you know probably a chipmunk <laughs> but we think it's a bear <laughs> and we need a lot of equanimity practice right you know it's great it's great training
So hard not to be moved, hard for the heart not to be engaged in some way throughout the day, you know, as we as we bring presence and awareness to our experience in nature. So this is a poem from Rumi. Uh, not Rumi, sorry. I always think it's Rumi, but it's not. It's um, Meister Eckhart, Christian mystic from the 12th century. As you see when you hear the poem, the church condemned and suppressed his work for six centuries. Far too mystical. When I was the stream, when I was the forest, when I was still the field, when I was every hoof, foot, fin, and wing, when I was the sky itself, no one ever asked me, did I have a purpose? No one ever wondered, was there anything I might need? For there was nothing I could not love. It was when I left all we once were that the agony began, the fear and questions came, And I wept and I wept in tears I'd never known before. So I returned to the river. I returned to the mountains. I asked for their hand in marriage again. I begged. I begged to wed every object and every creature. So I think of that, even though he's writing in the 12th century, I think of that as the way that we've become so divorced from nature. And our, our roots, our sense of knowing our place and our contact with the land and the sense of belonging and how that supports and nourishes the heart. Now, alienating to be removed from that as we are with our screens and our cities and whatnot. So one of the ways to understand loving-kindness is that it's a quality of connection. The way the heart connects with life, oneself, others, all beings, the earth. And so in this, you know, as we've been cultivating this receptive awareness, Hopefully that sense of connection is, is growing, is kindling. That as we feel more sensitivity, we feel more attunement. Because sometimes it feels very visceral, that contactfulness and the intimacy we can feel with the natural world. Right? L- love is not abstract. Right? It's contactful. It's relational. It's intimate, it's connected. (coughs) This is from D.H. Lawrence from Apocalypse. We cannot bear connection. We must break away and be isolate. We call that being free, being individual. Beyond a certain point which we have reached, it is suicide. What mankind most passionately wants is their living wholeness, their living unison, not their own isolate salvation of their soul. I am part of the sun as my eye is part of me. 
that I am part of the earth, my feet know perfectly, and my blood is part of the sea. There is nothing of me that is alone and absolute, except my mind, and we shall find that the mind has no existence by itself. It is only the glitter of the sun on the surface of the waters. You know, it's interesting, both these readings, you know, the Meister Eckhart's reading from the 12th century talking about separation from, from nature and D.H. Lawrence writing, I don't know quite when he was around, 100 years ago maybe, when was D.H. Lawrence around? Hmm? Yeah. He was talking about this, you know, what referred to in this country as the rugged individualism, that sense of separation that creates so much isolation and alienation and goes against the natural law, the, the Dharma, which is we're not separate, we're not isolated. And the more we orient in that direction, the more pain we feel. So, having taught loving-kindness practice for a long time and having done it for a long time, you know, what I come up against uh, so often is how hard it is for us to be kind to ourselves. How hard it is to just wish ourselves basic love, basic friendliness, which is tragic and very painful. And, um, you know, again, I think my experience, and I, and I know it's true for many people I've worked with, that the one place they feel safe or feel loved or feel accepted or feel okay to be as they are is in nature. Free from the, whether it's the trauma of the family conditioning, cultural conditioning, or, um, you know, all the, the judgments and stuff that have come from, you know, people, society, friends, family, loved ones. And, um, and I think that's one of the beautiful gifts of nature that allows us to come home to ourselves and, and find some capacity to accept and allow and, and, and be okay with who we are, how we are all of our quirks and, you know, we can have moments where we're free from the external judgments and the fear of that. This is from a poem from a New Zealand poet, Fleur Adcock, called Weathering, which I was, tell- I was saying yesterday that you were all looking more weathered in a, in a good way, <laughs> you know, like, you know, just in seething and brightness in your eyes and just you just look a little wilder you know um, she says literally thin skinned I suppose my face catches the wind off the snow line and flushes with a flush that will never wholly settle well that was a metropolitan vanity wanting to look young forever to pass I was never a pre-Raphaelite beauty but now that I'm in love with a place which doesn't care how I look or if I'm happy, happy is how I look, 
And that is all. Isn't that great? But now that I am in love with a place which doesn't care how I look or if I'm happy, happy is how I look, and that is all. My hair will grow gray in any case. My nails chip and flake, my waist thicken, and all the years will work their usual changes. If my face is to be weather-beaten as well, that's little enough lost, a fair bargain for a year among the lakes and fells, when simply to look out of my window at the high pass makes me indifferent to mirrors and to what my soul may wear over its new complexion. Fleur Adcock, New Zealand poet, who I believe, because she's referring to the lakes and the fells, uh, spent time in the north of England. I think she did, actually, which is where I first fell in love with the wilderness. Yeah, it's so in that same vein, um, just to reiterate that point, um, you know, there's so many reasons why uh, we don't feel a sense of place or a sense of belonging. Right? We move around a lot, you know, maybe our parents moved a lot. We're living in a different culture, different country. Um, or we're living in cities where it you know, can be, doesn't, one can find one's place in the city, but... Um, you know, as a species, we grew up, you know, very close to nature in small bands and um, knowing our sense of place and belonging. And, um, you know, I think the North America is a, is, is an, you know, coming from Europe where, you know, there's, you know, it's just older and, um, you know, I feel the sense of rootlessness uh, often here. And um, I know for myself, and I think this is true for probably for many of you, that there's something about being outdoors, and especially if we're settled in a place like this, there's, and even if it might not be our natural terrain, right? I'm used to, you know, wet, damp, rainy you know, foresty England, right? So this is not my terrain, but I've come here enough that it feels home. It's my second home. And um, again, we can feel a sense of welcoming of nature, of, oh, you know, you're welcome here. So Mary Oliver is going to speak about this a little more poetically than I just said. Very beloved poem, this one. Wild Geese. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the trees and the mountains and rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air are heading home again.
whoever you man whoever you are no matter how lonely the world offers itself to your imagination calls to you like the wild geese harsh and exciting over and over announcing your place in the scheme of things So I think this sense of belonging or homecoming or welcoming or you know is is a support for the heart to feel okay to feel I belong to feel you know sometimes we don't feel okay to exist or to take up space but we can feel at times from the natural world like you're welcome here you belong you're part of this earth So another thing that I think happens as we immerse outside is um, and I'm sort of touching on the last few days the invitation to cherish what's here to really honor it hold it in presence love it and also hold it lightly in the same way they were asked to love each other cherish to appreciate not take for granted never know how fleeting life is how suddenly loved ones can be taken away from us how things can radically change and so again this is a teaching a tenderizing of the heart to love and to let go to love the duck and the ducklings knowing that you know you know as nature goes most of those ducklings won't survive that's why she has 12 right. so how do we love and hold you know tenderly and also hold lightly Again, this is also from Miss Oliver. Look, the trees are turning their own bodies into pillars of light, giving off the fragrance of cinnamon and fulfillment, just like the trees here. The long tapers of cattails are bursting and floating away over the blue shoulders of the ponds 
And every pond, no matter what its name is, is nameless now. Every year, everything I've ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this. The fires and the black river of loss, whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. Everything I've ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this. The fires and the black river of loss, whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. (coughs) To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones as if your own life depends on it, and when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. So nature breaks our heart open, you know, to love, to cherish, to protect, to care for, and to also hold lightly, that we don't have control ultimately. You know, we love and cherish this beautiful earth and it's being, you know, really you know, savagely brutalized. How do we hold that the, the contradiction? We'll talk more about that tomorrow. So the, the loving-kindness practice that we've been touching on in the evenings, some of you have been doing for a very long time, um, you know, having done a lot of intensive practice, particularly with Sharon years ago, and one of the instructions that I loved that always surprised me was she, she would always say, practice metta in the easiest way possible. I'm like, what? What do you mean easy? That sounds like cheating. It has to be like hard and struggle and grit and, you know. And she said, no, like, you know, do your walking meditation wherever your heart is uplifted. It's like, great, I get permission to go outside. Don't often get that at IMS. Okay, you know, sit by the, you know, the, the fall leaves in the forest. Um, and so... You know, it's important that we nourish our heart, particularly because we often live with so much stress, so much anxiety, fear, worry, whatever a host of other things that are challenging for you. And so you want to be putting ourselves in, in the way of things that will uplift our heart. And since you're all here and all nature lovers, you know, it's going outside, going to the park, you know, looking at the sky, having a bird feeder, you know, tending to whatever garden or flower pots or animals you have, right? It's that which touches you and uplifts you. And so, you know, that's why I think that's why I, I was interested in exploring this theme, because for many people to love nature is an easier and safer way to allow the heart to open. You know, a lot of us have a lot of pain and wounding from human relationships, and, and there's a lot more 
vulnerability and protectiveness around loving another person. But in nature, there's a little less, usually less painful history. And and, and also just, it touches our heart. So, So to support your heart opening, Sing this to the converted, but you know, I so I was leading as I mentioned this um, nature meditation teacher training a few weeks ago. We were in um, the foothills of the Sierras, and I wanted to take the group out to this spot, it was a bit of a hike, so we could watch the sunrise over the Sierras, and uh, we would be sitting in this meadow, and I'd forgotten to check whether the cows were in the meadow. (laughs) So we were all sitting along this road, this dirt road, in a line facing the mountains and the the rising sun. And then this herd of cows comes over. (laughs) And like, you know, like a hundred cows, there's a big herd and the bull and all the babies, it's very sweet. And they all line up just like, like we're here (laughs) and they're all there and they're like, what? And we're all still, right? So they don't, humans are still, it's, you know, animals don't quite know how to read it. And they're like smelling, and, and the little young ones would come up and kind of poke a little and then come run back under mama's, you know. And, and talk about blowing your heart open. These big brown eyes, and big flapping ears, and beautiful coats, black and brown coats, and um, it was very touching. And then it was at least two people said, I can't eat meat again. <laughs> For real. Yeah. For real. Yeah. You know, you look with meditative presence into the eyes of a cow, right, which we don't do very often. And you feel this is a living being. This is a beautiful, alive being. Right? Is that what I want to eat? You know? So it was very tender, you know, and it's just beautiful to see the, everyone's hearts just melting, you know, in that simple content. You know, we were kind of like about where we are in the treat now, so the, so the heart was pretty tenderized already. In this uh, article that I quoted earlier from The Guardian, of uh, cataloging the the species, the number of species, but also the quantity of species. There's some startling facts that relate to this story. So, 60 percent, and this is a guesstimate from the research, and 60 percent of all mammals alive on the planet are livestock. A livestock. A livestock. Livestock. Cows, sheep, pigs, bison, deer, primarily. The next 36% of mammals are humans. The remaining 4% are wild animals. It's absolutely staggering. I don't know how accurate that is, but it, you know, I I'm sure that you know did a lot of research. It's in the in the ballpark. It's sort of inconceivable to me, but um, you know, and just 
testament to how much we've completely and utterly changed the landscape. Not just the landscape, but the, the life within it. And the same study, 60% of birds are poultry. 60%. So, you know, when we think about loving all beings, we also want to bear this in mind. And it's also an ecological catastrophe, as we know. The amount of Brazilian rainforest being cut down for cattle farms. So another poem. This is called Redbird Explains Himself. I assume she's talking about a cardinal visiting her, her walks in New England. Yes, I was the brilliance floating over the snow. And I was the song in the summer leaves. But this was only the first trick I had hold of among my other mythologies. But don't stop there. Stay with me. Listen. If I was the song that entered your heart, then I was the music of your heart that you wanted and needed. And thus wilderness bloomed there with all its followers, gardeners, lovers, people who weep for the death of rivers. And this was my true task, to be the music of the body. Do you understand? For truly the body needs a song, a spirit, a soul, and no less to make this work. The soul has need of a body, and I am both of the earth and I am of the inexplicable beauty of heaven where I fly so easily. So welcome, yes, this is why I have been sent to teach this to your heart. So there's you know, many ways that being song, beauty enters our heart and touches us and moves us, right? And so in a way, this practice, this nature practice, you know, is, is a practice of the heart, practice of beauty, practice of love. And so to really let yourself feel the love. But of course, the delicacy with doing that is we also feel the pain, right? why our heart breaks when we hear about a species going extinct or a river being polluted or rising sea levels or whales dying, drowning in plastic in their stomach. And so it teaches us about compassion. Feeling that tenderness and the resonance of our heart with the suffering of the earth of the species and the peoples and indigenous cultures within it that are suffering in this ecological catastrophe that we're in. So to let yourself feel that tenderness at times the, the heart that grieves, the heart that 
feels for the for the suffering no when is that IMS I played this song it's the song of the last male kawaii o'o bird you may have seen it singing for his mate but there's no mate because he's the last of the species it's just heartbreaking and it's why we need a courageous heart to not turn away, to not numb out, to feel, to grieve. It's the healthy response of a healthy ecosystem to grieve. You're part of the ecosystem. (sighs) Grieving for the loss of species, of habitat, of sacred land to indigenous peoples. And it's why, and I'll say more about this tomorrow, you know, the, the, this collection of heart practices, love, compassion, joy, and equanimity, there's a reason why they're, they're a, a whole a holistic system. System not quite the right word, but a holistic. You know, a heart is holistic and multifaceted, and we need all dimensions. The loving heart is the is the foundation. The responsive heart that, that, that meets the suffering that we encounter. But also the, the appreciative joy, that which can celebrate the happiness of others and delight in beauty and joy because we need to balance the pain that's often so heavy. Right? And then underpinning all those is equanimity, right? This steadiness, this balance, this ability to meet the truth with a certain strength and courageousness. Okay. And people often ask, well, what's equanimity doing in with these heart teachings? It seems so dry and cool and indifferent. And like, No, it's not cool or indifferent. It's cooler, but it's a steadiness, it's a strength, it's a, it's a balance, which we need given the turmoil of our lives and the world and our heart. So the, 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 you know, and I'm often stressing this, the need to be turning our attention to joy as well as the, the, the tragedy because that's what creates resilience, that's what supports equanimity. Right? Despite the drought, it's beautiful. Despite the parched land, it's still beautiful. Right? Where does your mind fixate? On the drought or the beauty? Or both. It's not, it's not a zero-sum game. But to notice where your mind leans. And to notice what, where the mind leans and what is that really supporting and nourishment and ballast and well-being. And so, you know, because of our negativity bias, we can lean towards always what's wrong. And that doesn't actually nourish the heart. We don't want to turn away from what's wrong, but we don't want to give it 
the soul uh, focus of our attention. And again, I'll talk more about this tomorrow. And so lastly, the equanimity that comes from being in nature and nature practice. You know, we, we talk some about that, about the staying steady with the comings and the goings and the, the ebbings and the flowings of experience. But we see that also in the larger scale of seasons and cycles and uh, you know, just the changing, you know, the, the natural contraction and expansion of, of life, of experience, of, of day um, and nature's so full of amazing uh, symbols of of equanimity or tenacity to to endure in difficult conditions. You know, one of the things I love when I'm teaching down in Baja is you get these big rock faces, and then in the middle of the rock, there's like a hundred year old soroya cactus, somehow finding moisture in this barren, dry rock. <laughs> like, it's not even soil, not even sand, it's just rock. <laughs> and somehow it's, you know, it's tenacious. And it, you know, blooming arms and flowers and it's an ecosystem for the bees and the hummingbirds and you know, you know, the crack of the, the grasses in the sidewalk and, you know, in the pavement. It's like nature is tenacious. You know, the other thing that I like when I'm down in Baja is, is, you know, there are many, many years where there's serious drought there. There's a desert. And, and so the, you'll see the cactus, they'll, you know, they'll be long and straight, and then, you know, and then they hit like, you know, 20 years of drought, and this, it goes to almost like a you know, thimble wide, and then goes out again when there's more moisture. And it's like, it's a beautiful symbol of tenacity and steadiness and equanimity. close with something. I'm not sure if I have it. I'll close with one last Mary Oliver poem. I skipped over joy. Oops, not that one. And maybe you've seen this here, the the bees and the pollinating insects nuzzling themselves into the beautiful flowers. It's called hum. What is this dark hum among the roses? The bees have gone simple, sipping, that's all. What did you expect? They're small creatures and they are filling their bodies with sweetness. How could they not moan in happiness? (laughs) The little worker bees I have read live only three weeks. Is that long? Long enough, I suppose, to understand that life is a blessing. 
I think there isn't anything in this world I don't admire. If there is, I don't know what it is yet. I haven't met it yet, nor expect to. The bee is small, and since I wear glasses, I have to take them off and bend close to study and understand what's happening. It's not hard. It's in fact as instructive as anything I've ever studied. Plus two, it's love almost too fierce to endure. The bee nuzzling like that into the blouse of the rose. And the fragrance and the honey and of course the sun and the purely pure sun shining all the while over all of us. So let's sit for a moment. And sensing your heart, just noticing what's here, listening to these words, feeling the the ripples from the day, the way that you may have been touched by so many things in the woods and the skies and the flowers and grasses and trees and rocks and rivers and light and beauty. Just sensing into how your heart's being caressed and softened and opened and and how your heart's being welcomed here and loved. Can you let yourself feel the love that comes from the earth and all the love that you have for it, towards it? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.